we visit this love God and love your neighbor kind of, uh, you can call it a paradigm, call it what have you. But when Jesus was asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? These are the things that he mentioned. And I, I, what I'm, I'm trying to do with you guys is to um, simplify Scripture um, in terms of, uh, you know, scripture, scripture can be as complex as you want it to be, as confusing, you know, as you want it to be. Um, it also can be so simple that a, a child can embrace it. And so um, that being the case, I think for all of us alike, you know, what is the kind of irreducible simplicity of the Christian life that I want to call you to so you understand exactly, essentially, um, uh, who you are in Christ. I think our doors are locked. Can somebody open the back door there? Or maybe it's over there. I'm, I guess they didn't lock the doors. That's kind of funny. Um, for a church to be welcoming, you want to leave doors unlocked. So we should work on that. Um, there we go. So um, as we live out day to day our Christian life, I want to give you the simple grid of uh, the motivation within you and also the actions that spur for motivations on how to do this. What is the aim, right? And the gospel, my argument here that I think is what the scripture is communicating to us and tells us is that the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ, enables us, it brings new life to us that we may live out loving God and loving our neighbor. What I want to do today is a survey from Genesis to Revelation. We'll kind of go through a lot of the Bible this morning as we talk about um, this redemptive plan and the elements of it and to see its impact on God and others when sin enters the equation and how God's plan of redemption, what it does to not just to us as individuals, but also to a community of people. So um, when I say this, hear me out, God's plan of redemption is not to save you, but to save us. That's an important dynamic that we must understand. God's plan is not just for you, okay? It is for us. Salvation is not just your salvation. It is our salvation. Uh, since eternal times, God has been in community with himself. We know that as the word Trinity, of course the word Trinity is not in Scripture, but it's our best efforts to describe this idea of the, the single plurality of God. And in, in, in the Old Testament, the word Elohim even has a, a plural nature to it, even though it's referring to a single God. He is, he is oneness and also uh, more than one. And we, don't, we don't know, you know how to explain that. But community has been a part of who God is from eternal times past. When he created human beings, he didn't create one human being. He created two human beings. And he had an idea, a vision, um, that he made reality in the Garden of Eden that was a community of human beings who were his image bearers living their life with their God, with him forever and ever. Humans weren't meant to be lived um, in isolation apart from one another and apart from God, but rather with God and with each other, they were to experience their life in fullness and harmony, complete flourishing in this place called Eden. That is how uh, we can define this idea of community. Now, things outside of that, okay, um, that do not involve God in your life or other people, 
um, in your life, it essentially has the effect of dehumanizing us. And the dehumanization, is that a word? I made it up, I don't know. But it communicates, so I'll use it. Um, what happens is that's what we can also label as sin. Sin enters the equation and affects that. And it starts breaking it up, and it brings problems. So I'll use this example of this. Um, of this. We have a fish tank in my house. So, we, we, you know, I had a bunch of pets growing up. Also only had one brother. didn't have, you know, five siblings. And um, we also had three eight three acres of land, and my neighbors had a cow pasture. This is in Georgia, right? Cow pasture. They had about 30 acres right behind us, and then the other neighbor had like 30, and then there was just endless miles of pine trees. We just, we would walk for, you know, an hour and never see the end of it. So we could have dogs just loose in the woods, because it's just, this was Georgia, right? You just, they ran in the woods. And so easier to have pets. Not so much for our house, right? Sometimes my two-year-old is enough of a you know, not, he's, he's not a dog, but he acts like a dog in that stage. It's like what I call the dog-like stage. They like to fetch things and come back to you and smile and, you know, whatever. But you get what I'm trying to say. It's hard to have dogs in my house. So, but pets are important. I got them a uh, fish tank, okay? And there's about 10 fish in there, 10-gallon tank. And I thought, well, this would be nice, you know. They call the fish that we got, the tropical fish, community fish, which if you read the word community, you think, well, these are nice. They're not going to be, like, attacking each other. You know, they're not going to kill each other. They're going to be like playing and swimming around in circles, and the kids can go, oh, well, this is nice. This is precious. Well, one morning, my son walks up, and he goes, Daddy, there's an extra fish in the tank. And I said, no, there's not. You, you're, you're miss, you know, that's not what happens. There's not, like, I didn't buy another fish. He's like, okay. And he goes, Dad, I'm telling you, there's, there's a little black fish. It wasn't there yesterday. It's new. And so I look, and sure enough, there's this little black fish around the rocks. And we just bought, this is like two weeks into us getting this tank. And we had one of the black fish, it's a molly fish, it's a big long one. It had babies. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So I don't know what to do. So of course, like anything else, you Google, what are you doing to fish have babies? And it says, well, they have 10 to 20 babies when these fish give birth. That's the first thing I read. So I'm like, oh, there must be more than one fish then. And I'm looking, and there's not. I'm like, where are the other fish? And then the next thing I see, which is rather horrifying, when these fish give birth, you must isolate them because they eat their own babies. I'm like, oh. And then right when I read that, what did my kids yell? Hey, Daddy, the fish just ate the other fish. And then, of course, there's tears. Oh, why did eat the baby? And I'm like, okay. So these are community fish. All right? My definition of community is not eating the baby you just gave birth to. I mean, imagine moving to a neighborhood where the realtor was like, yeah, I just don't have a baby in this neighborhood because, right, that's not community. That's not what I understand community as. And I mention that story because I think in the church, we have to ensure that we have the correct definition of community and we, we, we have a full definition of community. The pet shop didn't tell me that piece. Right? Um, that doesn't match the definition of community. We have to understand what God had in mind, the fullness of what God had in mind. And I think that sin can often come in, and in our lives, we can learn and even practice healthy elements of community in our lives. But then we, we, we kind of allow in things that don't fit into that box, okay? And we become okay with it. And that's, I think, uh, when sin surfaces in our life. And we learn to deal with it. What I'm trying to do this morning is to communicate to you not a cheap version of what God has in mind for us as a new church plant, as a community of Christians. 
not a, um, a shortened version, not a half-defined version, but rather a full definition of living as a people of God together within the salvation we've received in Jesus Christ as we love God and love our neighbor. So, let me continue with a summary kind of of the scripture here. In the Garden of Eden, human beings were together in God's presence. They were image bearers, okay? Uh, the idea of an image in the ancient Near East was if you uh, went to, uh, you know, these ancient kingdoms were massive, they were large, of course there was no rapid transit, right? So for the king to go in the outskirts of his empire was not an easy task. It was expensive, it was long, it was a journey, a lot of times dangerous even for the king to make. And so what they would do is build statues of themselves, big ones, intimidating statues, and put them kind of on the outskirts of the kingdom, and it would be called, oh, that's the king's image. Because the idea was that he can't necessarily be in that spot, but he still rules that spot, and therefore this is a reminder, this is the king's image, to remind these people living in this portion of the empire, the king still rules, the king still reigns, even over here, even if he's not with you. So if you're an ancient Near Eastern reading Genesis 1, you would be hearing that, the image of God. But that's referring to human beings. And it's also a little different, right? Because God is omniscient, he's also omnipresent, we know these things, so it's not a complete exact correlation, but it kind of expands the definition of being in his image because you and I don't just reflect God, but we carry out even some of his characteristics. He created the world, what did he tell us to do? Go and subdue the world and build and, and, and create, be culture makers, go and, and make this beautiful world even more beautiful, right? You can create because you're in my image, right? He created two people. He said, you're my image, therefore love one another as, as, as I love my, you know, in the Trinity himself, they have what, what theologians call this, this ever dance of love that, that is always present within the Godhead, is maximum enjoyment, maximum uh, love, maximum happiness within God. And he's sharing that with his people, saying, I created two of you, now go multiply, fill this world with more humans and go and spread out and enjoy this beneath God and with other people. Now, two landmarks God put in Eden to remind us of who we are as humans beneath God. We have the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. The tree of life was a symbol of not just the excess in the garden. If you read, they had more food than they needed, more water than they needed. They had gold and precious jewels. It was a place of complete abundance, but it also represented the fullness of eternal life that God was offering to his new image bearers. He said, I want you to enjoy this life and taste of this tree and have life evermore. I have you have an abundance, you can enjoy this garden, but you can also enjoy life before me forever. But there's one thing that you must always remember with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's burdens that you are not intended to carry. There's burdens that as human beings, actually, if you tried to carry, would crush you, would destroy you. It would bring the opposite of what I created, which was life. It would bring death. So as soon as you embrace this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are embracing something that will bring you death. And I, actually God said, I, I will bring death into this equation if you try to take on that burden. That's my burden. It's not yours. And what does that force, forcibly invoke in us? Faith. Right? Do we trust God with that? Do we trust those kind of secret, mysterious things that say, okay, that stuff that's God? And so we're going to have this, he was establishing a faith-based relationship from day one. Do you trust me? 
I'm here with you right now, but still, I didn't give you the keys of everything. You're limited. I created you to be limited. Do you trust me? Adam and Eve, we know, were tempted by the serpent, and ultimately their trust was broken that they assumed that knowledge for themselves to define what is good. God already said stuff was good. This is good, this is good, you're good. And we said, ah, I don't know. I want to decide what's good for myself. It's amazing that we still, even in our culture today, we still use that language today. That's the essence of sin, taking on God-sized decisions, making uh, definitions up that says, well, this is good, even though God said it's not. And that means that we are assuming the place of God, even in our own life, taking control of the harnesses ourself. And not only does sin enter the equation, the death enter the equation, but back to our love God and love neighbor, something happened. Two things happened. We were exiled from God's presence. The theme of exile is all in Scripture. And secondly, what happened to Adam and Eve? Enmity between them. There's going to be strife between human beings. So immediately, this harmonious relationship between God and His people is broken that now we're not just enmity with God, we're exiled from God, and now there's going to be conflict between human beings shown in Genesis chapter 4. What happened with Cain and Abel? The first thing that happens was you have human beings murdering each other. So this is broken. Us and God, exile. We're empty with God. Us and people. Now we're killing each other. So you see that God's redemptive plan is to bring this back to some kind of cohesive whole to say, one day, you're going to be back with your God. And one day, you human beings will all know me from east to west, from the sea to sea. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the lion and the children will be able to play over the hole of a serpent. We'll get to that in just one moment. I'm skipping ahead. Babel. You skip ahead of Genesis chapter 11. You have this idea of humans were together. They weren't actually killing each other. Well, that's great, right? What were they doing together? They're trying to do more God-sized things. We'll build a tower. We'll get back to heaven ourselves. We can do this ourselves, right? Assuming something of God once again. And instead of God wiping them out, which he had all permission to, in his grace, what he did was confuse their languages and he spread them out. So once again, we see the pattern. When sin enters the equation, it, 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 not only does it affect us and God, but these human beings now are separate, even more separate, where they can't even communicate with each other. There's a movie that came out years ago called Babel that exemplifies this. Um, in, a, in a really interesting way that shows the confusion and, and the complications that comes from just not being able to communicate with one another. That's a part of the curse. That's the curse. Multiple languages are actually part of, the, part of the curse of sin, if you think about that. So then we fast forward centuries, many centuries, to Solomon. Okay, we're skipping a lot of biblical history. Sol Solomon has Israel um, in this united kingdom. His father passed, okay? And we're back to this Eden-like environment. Gold abounds. There's abundance flowing everywhere. Solomon is reigning over a united people. They build this temple. The presence of God comes. Even though Solomon says no temple could fully hold your presence. But yet, this is a peculiar, uh, distinct people. And this temple is going to be your presence within your people. And this place of Israel capitalized in Jerusalem with God's presence is going to essentially, he, he painted trees all inside of the temple, pomegranates and fruit. Why would he do that? Because he's saying this is like Eden. We're back in Eden. Look, God's with us. We're with his people. We have, a made, we, we have atonement for sin with, with the sacrificial system. And 1 Kings 4.20 says this, Judah and Israel were happy. There were as many 
um, as the sand by the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. It seemed like things were good. Here we are. We're back to Eden in a way. It's not the same, but things are looking pretty good until Solomon goes after pagan women, worships other gods. And what happened? He became distant from his God. His son became even more distant from his God. And he rebelled against his God, rebelled against the people. And then the result, once again, was not just a distance from God that happened in the hearts of, the, of, of Rehoboam, his son, but Israel was split up. And people were separate and split up from one another. The kingdom separated from the north kingdom to the south. Again, the common theme is when your love for God is broken, there's a broken relationship between you and those around you. It repeats throughout Scripture. Now, this cycle continues. The cycle of exile, right? The cycle of being brought back together. Sin enters again. Distance from God. Distance from people. It repeats all over until you have Isaiah chapter 11. I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to read this. I love this chapter. Isaiah seems to look forward to someone coming who can do something that none of the other Israelite kings could do. David was the son of Jesse. And he, sa- he says this in Isaiah 11. This is 700 years before Christ was born. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He, he talks about his kingly duties of deciding righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he keeps going. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And he keeps going. And he says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie with the young goat. Violence seems to be disappearing. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant of the remains of his people. He will raise a signal from the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You get the whole message here. The single king is coming. He's going to gather people to himself. These people who were separated from one another are coming back into this stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse, come back into his fold. And they're not just coming from one distinct place, but all over the earth. This is looking forward to something that God is doing. He's restoring the world back to himself while simultaneously restoring people to one another beneath his kingship. And I, 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 I say this, this is a side note. I, I, I go on side notes sometimes. Um, if you know me, you know I'm, I, I've never fought, you know, I, I've never been, I'm not a veteran, I did not serve in the military. I have, obviously, I have my, many cousins and, and family members who have. Um, so I'm not anti-military in that regard. We're all thankful for our military. But as Christians, if we understand the mission of God, which is to remove violence from this world, okay, at the preservation uh, of, of life, okay, we need to consider, as Christians, we need to exemplify, um, at least in our own life, um, peace. And on the broader scale, we should at least be the church, the people asking questions as our nation seems to be in endless wars, you know, like is there, is, is there other options to do this? Right? Is there other options that we have other than just endless wars? Um, I think that our voice sometimes is not as, as, as loud as it should be. And so as we love the people who serve our country, we need to, I think, be the ones asking questions. Is, is there, can we reduce our violence a bit? Can we, can we stop, perhaps? But again, that's another side question. 
Um, but we look forward to the day when the gospel comes, when Christ returns in the fullness and, and, and all sin and death is gone forever and there will be no more war. Isn't that a beautiful future that we have to look forward to beneath Jesus himself? So as we continue our sermon here, expanding the understanding of the good news, I want to expand your understanding of the gospel as it encapsulates love, encapsulates love God and love your neighbor. The gospel then, as we saw in Isaiah 11, the foretelling of this gospel, it is not ultimately about you. It is about us. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is not a message only for you, but if it is for you, which it is, okay, Jesus calls us to make a decision to get our lives in order with his and to repent and to follow him. But that is not just to be lived out alone in isolation, but rather he is restoring a people to himself, a people that love one another, a people that love God when our sin has been dealt with with the death of Christ and his resurrection. The new life is then given to us and he's, he's gathering you together to live out your faith as one people together. Jesus has removed the barriers that prevented us from being with God. And, just, and thus the eternal work of the Spirit who gives life to us that removes the barriers that keeps us from loving one another. So others may in turn love God through Jesus. The Great Commission is thus that we go and we spread the good news of Jesus to others. And the good news is the message of His death, the message of His resurrection, the availability of salvation, most exemplified by how you love others. The Gospel is shown by our love for one another. Thus, when we speak of expanding the kingdom or seeing Jesus' kingdom grow through evangelism, we see it happen when people become Christians by turning from their sin, placing hope in Jesus, and thus receiving new life. And He pursues you, okay? He's after us. He's after you. If you're here in this room, it's not by mistake. He is pursuing you. I firmly believe that. But He's pursuing you that He's not pursuing you to make an end. That your life becomes the end point of His pursuit. No. He wants to pursue other people through you. You understand how this works? He's not pursuing you that it stops there. His pursuit of you becomes through you as you pursue other people in the name of Jesus. That's how the work of the kingdom is spread about. Okay? There's a fun... Uh, nine... Okay. Uh, uh, let me say this. Um, yes. So the nine out of 13 of Paul's letters. Uh, no, I'll say this. I'm sorry. So I grew up in evangelicalism. I grew up in the South, the Deep South. And, um, and uh, you know, there's every geographical area has its faults. You know, there's weaknesses uh, in many different, you know, elements of the, uh, of the manifestation of modern day Christianity. Um, even though we're all one body, there's different ways that portions of the church live this stuff out. But what I've seen in recent times in my own life is um, we, don't, we don't have good categories for including other people within our Christianity that we often, I think sometimes by mistake, without knowing, we communicate Christianity 80 whatever percent of the time as it, as it uh, uh, refers to the individual, as it refers to you, as your habits, your disciplines, your devotional Bible reading, what you do, you, 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 and that is indeed some of it. But the way I understand when Jesus says it's about loving God and loving our neighbors is we look at the cycle throughout the Old Testament, all the prophecies, the Great Commission, we see that it's, it's, yes, it refers to you, but you can't define your Christianity as it refers to you without 
communicating how your life impacts those around you, how the gospel within your life influences or should be influencing those around you, how you exemplify Jesus Christ in your day-to-day life and all the relationships that encircle you. We can't define our Christianity apart from its presence with other people in your life, with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and etc. Especially, as the New Testament says, with you next to one another, with Christians together in a local church. Nine out of 13 of Paul letters were written not to individuals, but to churches. And I think we often have the habit of reading Paul's letters in lots of the New Testament as if it's about an individual. How can I do this? That's the wrong question. How can we do this? That's the right question. It's not about, okay, here's some ethical commandments that says I need to be like Jesus. Okay, how can I do this? That's some of them. But the question really is how can we do that? That's what Paul is ultimately writing. And even the, the, the four books that he did write to individuals, we have Philemon, two letters to Timothy and to Titus, okay? What was Philemon's problem, if you read that book? It was between him and, what do you know, somebody else. Timothy was pastoring a church. He was writing to Timothy in his dealings with other people, sometimes referring to Timothy in his own habits and his own life for the sake of those in his life. And the same thing with Titus as he was pastoring a church as well. So the idea here is that we have to know your faith cannot be lived out in isolation as an individual, but you as a Christian are part of a community. And so the scriptures are addressing us as a church more than addresses just the individual. And this, this fills how we communicate the gospel. When we communicate the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we're not just called in to make a personal decision. Of course, that's a part of it. That's only a small piece because the personal decision of salvation becomes one that's very much not personal, right? Because your life becomes opened up to all around you in the church. That regardless of, of your past and, and whatever sin that you may be bringing to the table, if you walk in here and you're saying, you, you may know my story, you have no idea what I've done, but I love Jesus. We get to say, great, you know what? I don't have any judgment for you because you, know, you don't even know what I've done or what I thought. I mean, how many times, maybe, you know, I, I, maybe you haven't done physically bad things, but what if we all had a window into your thoughts, into your mind, and how you think when the door is closed? And I'm sure all of us are getting red even thinking about that, Right? We all bring that to the table. But if we understand the gospel, we're saying it doesn't matter because that's all washed away. We are now saved saints. We're not perfect people by any means, but now as a community, we are chasing after Christ together. Your relationship with Jesus has personal elements to it, but that's only personal for the sake of those around you, that they may also flourish in Christ. Um, There's two different verses I wanted to go to. I haven't even really touched a portion of Scripture yet. Um, I'll just go to, the, to Philippians 2. That's okay. I want to go to Ephesians 1. But Philippians 2 is a famous portion. We're not going to spend much time here. Um, is uh, one of the famous, what they call them, the Christological passages that talk about um, Christ's, uh, uh, His person, His work, and what He did. Um, but the example of this, as we leave here, as we, as, we, as we go on the back end of the sermon, I'm going to read this to you. Paul He addresses, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, it's rhetorical, 
He knows he's writing to Christians. He knows those things exist. And I think he's dressing the individuals in the church. Is there love in your life? Is there affection in your heart? Is there sympathy for others? Is there a participation of the Spirit? The answer is yes. He doesn't go into what you should do yourself, right? What does he do? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. You can't be of the same mind. You can't be of, uh, of, of, uh, of the same love. We can, though. We can be of the same mind. We can be of the same love. See what Paul's doing here? He's addressing the church. Let each of you do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count with equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess together that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I read this, what I want you to understand something. Jesus himself, he left heaven, which he was in perfect community with God the Father since eternal times past, and he leaves that. He takes on skin and bones, and he takes on temptation in his life. He takes on hardship. He's known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He takes all of this on himself. He leaves heaven. He lives this human life being mostly misunderstood, having some friends who left him in his time of need. As he hung on the cross, even his precious, most loving father had to turn his back, only left by his mother and perhaps one disciple. All of his friends, all of the crowd had left him, even being as he was mocked by those hanging next to him. He dies in near isolation, completely alone. He deprived himself of community. Why? He deprived himself of even, for that moment, his relationship with his father. His father had to turn his back. He deprived himself of that. Why? That you and I don't have to. He deprived himself of that, that you and I may have the fullness of that. He deprived himself of that, that he may remove all the barriers and obstacles in our life. That we miss out on knowing God. That we miss out on living this life together with other Christians. He experienced complete exile, right, from God. He experienced exile from others that you and I do not have to experience that. He was outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. God looked away from him, right? He was even betrayed by one of his closest friends. The end result of all of this was the resurrection, which ultimately leads to what? Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing upon his second return that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end result of the gospel is a restoration of all of his people upon his return that is brought together underneath his rule and his reign in complete perfection forever and ever. So as we close this morning, I read that to you because I want you to become accustomed to a couple of things. To not define your Christianity 
as yours only. Don't be selfish like that. You know why? Um, you have something to offer. My, uh, my, my, uh, my father-in-law's father, he, he passed away a few years back, but he would, I remember him telling me a couple times, he said, um, even the bum on the street has something to offer, right? Um, as a human being, that by itself means you have uh, value, you have something to offer to those around you, but as a Christian, even more so, because the Holy Spirit dwells in all of you. In your story, in your talents, your abilities, your knowledge, your, what you bring to the table from your experience in life and how the Spirit manifests Himself in your life means that you have something unique to contribute to my life, to those around you. Don't deprive us of that. Don't live that faith in isolation because if I'm honest, that's, that's, that's somewhat selfish. I need you and you need the person next to you. This is the whole idea of this. God didn't create us to be able to be alone. This is why I get frustrated living in America, is that in America we, we, we glorify individualism as if it's like this goal. Like the goal is to be, to be liberated from being in need of other people. To be able to be on your own and not to have, or have help or support from anybody. I can do this alone. And I read the, the, this Bible and I'm like, no, actually. That's not God's plan. Right? His plan isn't to save you so you can be this, this you know, superhuman person to be alone. I don't need anybody. Actually, you do. We did in, in the garden. We, we needed each other. We needed God. And I need you and you need one another. That's kind of the idea here. He's restoring us back together. Become accustomed to talking to each other about Jesus in this room. Don't let that be something weird. Let it be commonplace. Hey, I, I, this week, uh, you know, Jesus... It's great. He's great. Right? Talk to each other about Christ. Become accustomed to having one another in your homes. Be hospitable. Right? Open up that door. Get that tablecloth out. Buy the extra chicken. Invite people, each other into your home. Right? If you invite my family over, buy two extra chickens. <laughs> Don't do that. Turkey. It's a little cheaper. That's right. Become accustomed to confessing sin to one another, okay? Don't be embarrassed or shamed by your sin. Well, I guess to some degree we should be, that's when we confess it, right? But we confess it, therefore, to then turn from our sin and say, I don't have to be ashamed anymore because that's, that's done, it's washed away, it's in the past. And you don't, I shouldn't expect judgment from you because I know that you have your own sin as well and we're all clean. But I need to come clean with this. I need to be honest with this. And we need to be able to expend uh, uh, trust with one another that says, I won't burn you for telling me the truth about that stuff in your life. I'm not going to go and burn you from telling me that. I'm going to offer mercy to you and love to you just as Christ has offered mercy to me and love to me. That's what it means to be the church. Serve one another, care for one another, wash one another's feet, pray together, pray for one another. And then, this isn't enough though, because the church isn't just to be here. If we just did those things together in this room and we live life together, well, that's great. But guess what? It's still not complete. Because out there, even on this playground right now, even all the homes across this neighborhood, 95% of people around here, they don't really have a relationship with Christ. At least statistically, you know, that's what it shows at least. They don't find themselves in a pew on Sunday. They don't find themselves having any kind of value for Jesus or knowing Jesus, right? There's lots of people out there there's one of two things. They look great on the outside and the front yard is clean and the house looks great and everything looks like it's in order, right? You have other people who are just 
completely uh, broken, even regardless of how it looks internally, there's complete brokenness in their life. And we're sitting on the message of hope for this world. And are we going to just share it with one another? Is that what we're going to do? Because again, that is being selfish. Because it's not just yours to share with one another. It also needs to be extended to this world. It needs to be extended to our neighbors. The hospitality that we have is not just for each other. The hospitality is also for that neighbor, right? It's also for that family that you're like, man, they're so messed up, and I don't even know how to invite them in. I don't even know how to take on that messiness. But guess what? You should, right? Stick your neck out. Have them into your home. I don't know what's going to happen. It could be messy, but guess what? You should do it, right? Because that's what Jesus found himself doing, sitting at a table with some of the most messed up, broken people. And all the Pharisees are like, Jesus, if you only knew who you're sitting in front of. And he goes, actually, I do. And if you were only like that person... Maybe you'd be sitting with me. That's what he would say, right? Oh, Jesus, if you only knew what that woman was, who she was, when she, she was pouring the perfume on your feet, if you only knew what she did yesterday, he's like, I know what she did yesterday. She's chosen the better place. Are you? What, what are you doing? You're judging her? I can publicly share your sins, right? She's in a better spot. So in closing, identify the things in your life that isolate you from God and from others. Acknowledge anything that can isolate you from God and acknowledge it that that's a part of the curse in this world, right? If you're seeking satisfaction in anything but, it, but of God, identify that that is part of the curse. And by way of extending that out, if there's things, if, 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 if there's things in your life that keep you from one another, I'm going to say this, that the, you're, you're robbing the gospel of its power. And let me qualify that. The gospel in and of itself can do, uh, the Spirit of God can use it to do tremendous work in somebody's life apart from you, okay? In some regards, the gospel doesn't actually need you to some way. The Spirit of God can, can you can just give a, a, you know, the stories of people getting like a sheet or two of a Bible and reading it and becoming a Christian, right? On, on their own. So we know that. But God has sent us out to live this out. And if we live our faith in isolation, if we allow things to keep us from God or keep us from other people, we are essentially muting the power of what the gospel could be in your own life. We are quenching the Spirit to some degree, right? We are withholding that from those around you. I think the gospel has great power to work in our communities, and if we don't live it out with each other and with our neighbors, we are robbing that. So as we leave here, be satisfied in God. Be honest with yourself, right, of things that may keep you from this. The gospel has supplied us with real food, with real waters. Isaiah 55, as it says, don't go for the cheap stuff that's not real. Don't go for the cheap water that doesn't give you any kind of quenching, right? Be satisfied in God. Pursue each other. Live out your faith with one another. And may we be known as this tiny little new church that's approaching our one-year anniversary as we go into the fall months. Um, statistically, it's when people maybe want to visit a church or, you know, show up here. As, as that happens... May we be known for being kind, loving, hospitable people who are not ashamed to talk about Jesus, but are also not ashamed to get our hands dirty and to go down and wash their feet. So let me pray. Jesus, um, thank you for um, just the simplicity of the way you, you summed up the entirety of this big, mega, 66 individual book, Bible, <clears throat> by loving God and loving your neighbor. And thank you that you have enabled us to do that, you have a plan to, to, for the fullness of time to, to bring heaven down to earth once again, right?
But we know now that you have caused an overlap in our lives and of where every church is is an overlapping of heaven on earth. And I pray that as we live out our faith, equip us with, with love for each other. Um, give us uh, uh, just realness. Remove any judgmental spirit in our heart that would, that would create barriers between us. Lord, I pray that we would be, um, uh, ha- have a, a desire for hospitality, a desire to live this with others and in front of others and before others. And Jesus, help us to lose fear of getting involved in other people's life, of befriending those who need help, befriending our neighbors who, who don't know you and who are hungry and thirsty and looking for answers. Would you equip us, bring those people into our life, Lord, and may your spirit go out and do great works and great wonders through us. So Jesus, uh, just do above and beyond anything that we would ever expect. And may this church, Lord, we want, to, we want to see growth. We want to see growth by people not just becoming Christians for the first time, but by those people also joining us here in this family, becoming a, a, an intricate part of this community that we know that we, we, we all need each other and we know there's people who don't even know you yet that, that need to be here, that we also need in our life. So Jesus, bring those people here and do above and beyond what are we expect. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, I'm going to call uh, Gregory up now as we transition to our time of communion.